0: Hi, I'm Dr. Tej Gita, GHD's global leader, Future Energy, and host of A Clarion Call, a podcast series bringing together leading subject matter experts from around the world to explore opportunities to de-risk the energy transition. Hello, and welcome to A Clarion Call, a GHD Future Energy podcast series. I'm joined today by Alicia Eastman, President of Intercontinental Energy, and by Sarah Fitzgerald, Global Program Lead for Future Energy at GHD. Thank you both for joining us today. We'll be discussing a topic that is near and dear to my heart, which is the social acceptance to succeed in the energy transition. So I'm kind of hoping that we can start, Alicia, with you, in your view as co-founder president and board director of a leading green fuels company. How important is community acceptance to reaching net zero? And how do you approach this at Intercontinental Energy?
1: I think it's of utmost importance. We really look at our projects as not just being good for the environment, not just to roll back global warming, but uh, we want to make the surrounding areas, the communities, all stakeholders, we would like to have them have an optimal return. Because the projects are so large, they really obviously need to have support from the communities for uh, just really social license. Obviously, we want the best resource ever, so we're looking at coastal deserts. But we really also want to do no harm. And that's not just for animals or the environment, it's also for people. There's very much equal emphasis on, on these factors. And it's worked really well for us. We have great relationships with, uh, you know, local partners. And I think that the countries we work in are happy about it. And in some cases, we're raising the bar and people are starting to follow us.
0: It's a bit of a mindset change, isn't it? Right. Because I think sometimes when people go out to, to talk to stakeholders, they see it as a checkmark process or, as you said, an obstacle. This is something we have to do. We better get at it rather than looking at it as an opportunity for these people, how do you come to an understanding of those groups and, and become familiar with those groups so you can have a meaningful conversation with them?
1: Well, I'll I'll give you one example. Um, say in Oman, when we had already put up the masts and the sodars and the tridents, and we had selected the land, and we had carved out the Oryx uh, Reserve, and we had made sure that we're not nearing the airports, etc., We hired a local firm to do the environmental study, but also the socioeconomic study. And we hired her because she was the best. We always do three bids. We we always try to to, to make it competitive. That's like just in the rules of our JV with, with our other partners. But we do have a preference for local firms. So all else being equal, we will try to use a local firm. A, because they know the area better than we do. They know a lot of the things that could pop up that, you know, we won't, won't be able to predict. But B, because that's part of the in-country value we're bringing, is to give new business to them and to have HMR. They have so much work, they can't handle it too much anymore because they did the first hydrogen project in Oman. With us, and so of course everybody's wants to use them, Um, and that is in itself a fantastic way to get the community involved and and to get another stakeholder, whether it's just an Omani citizen, to have have the best return.
0: Sarah, 25 years of experience engaging with communities. And I know that you have been on some pretty tough assignments in the past that have generated a lot of interest in the stakeholder and communities that that the projects are being engaged in. And you've worked specifically in energy projects. In your view, how intertwined is community acceptance, project success, and our regulatory environment. I think those are our three main pillars, right? Community acceptance, project success, regulation. How, how do those come together for you?
2: Oh, certainly um, inextricably linked. And on what I would say in that 25 years or t- over 25 years is I think people are finally starting to get the points that Alicia was making. We're actually starting to understand that this isn't a win-lose situation. This isn't a checkbox. This is actually around sustainable Development, it's around good project success. Without the support of local communities, it's really tricky to try and get the permits that you can. And some environments, this is, and I should say, I'm speaking from a very Australian kind of perspective here, or a sort of very Western perspective. So we have very strong regulation. That's not always the case in all of our developing countries, and maybe maybe, you know, fingers crossed we can actually have some countries that actually leapfrog some of the um, the ills of the past and learn and actually get a better outcome for their communities more quickly. So without that local support, it's really difficult to get permits, it's difficult to get certainty, it's difficult for projects to get funded and to kind of move forward. And if we think about a lot of the sort of... judge, takes a lot of work on due diligence, on energy project due diligence when they might be sold or um, be looking to be transferred. And I understand recently in speaking to our team that the highest proportion of projects are actually failing at the moment the ones that are failing are failing on the basis of insufficient work being done in the area of community acceptance so even though you've got a permitted project you actually have a significant risk on that project because it hasn't been the community hasn't been elevated to a point of view where they understand that they accept and that the project can therefore succeed so there's still even though we can you know as Alicia was saying we can ram a project through and we can we can game it and get an approval we actually still don't have the acceptance within that community for that project to kind of thrive. With all that's happening with climate change, with where our sort of temperatures kind of, you know, dangerously close or some would say past tipping point we actually can't afford to have this adversarial relationship with communities we actually need we need our communities to be on board to understand and to accept this and how we get that is through the process that we actually engage them we work with them we cite we design we contribute we look at sort of um, you know what are the things that we can we can concede on where are the things that we can both win um, how might this look completely different so I think and and the foundation for that at least in the approvals process is set with is set with regulation um, and so if we can get a, a better process of uh, of actually intertwining the community in that whole permitting process or that regulatory process then we'll actually get a much better outcome so yet yeah, how, how can we move beyond the sort of hostility that might be in a, in a host community to actually get a community that is welcoming of a project a community that actually understands the benefit a developer that can actually see you know what might need to occur within that community to see it thriving but actually taking not necessarily just a sort of sing, single project focus on a particular development but actually seeing this as an element of a thriving and sustainable community.
0: So we've Talked a little bit about the political side of this. This is a question for you. I mean, we need to decarbonize and we need to do it quickly. So how do we get communities in this era of all this political noise around these subjects? How do we get communities to really understand that we need to decarbonize and this is what this looks like?
1: Well, I think, first of all, Mother Nature is doing a good job for us. People (laughs) that used to say, oh, there's lots of weather variation. Um, You know, no, there was not baseball size hail in Dallas before, like this, (laughs) this this is new stuff. (laughs) One fifth of the permafrost is gone. All sorts of things that we've already hit the tipping point on, you know, that permafrost is not coming back. Who knows what's there? Who knows besides more methane and whatnot, but all sorts of diseases and, and things that could, you know, wipe out communities.
0: Yeah, it's, it's sort of sad, isn't it, that maybe one of the ways we can get communities to understand the need to rapidly decarbonize is to actually feel the negative consequences of not decarbonizing, that that's the thing that allows communities to rise above the media spin and the and the political discourse, which is often so toxic. I mean, I wish we could kind of get to the point where communities are seeing this as, as, as the existential crisis, I think we all believe it is, and acting before they're acutely feeling it sort of at the... Uh, in their wallets, or or you know, just from direct consequences, which so many people are now. Sarah, how do you how do you feel about this? About getting that decarbonisation message to communities?
2: Uh, look, I think um, some observations would definitely be around the consistency of message, and I think it's really easy. You know, life's busy as human beings. You know, the status quo is where we like to be, and we're getting bombarded with so many inconsistent messages at the moment that. We need that elevated conversation that actually, and to, to Alicia's point, the elevated conversation which often comes when you have you have a crisis. Like the bushfires in Australia, at several years ago and certainly there's lots of nervousness about how we're already seeing bushfires you know, take off in places that we haven't had them previously in Australia at this point in the year. So it's sort of a fairly... Um, Yeah, there's some nervousness certainly around, or some fear in the community around what the um, what the summer's going to hold. But that consistent messaging that actually elevates the conversation. So we haven't got, we don't leave it to developers to have to, you know, solve the whole energy transition question or the whole need to decarbonise with communities. That we actually have, you know, that elevated messaging that actually is the the why we need to do this and what the benefits are, and that we're not sort of having. Um, one developer say one message and another developer say something really different and we're sort of then left as a community kind of to try and navigate a pathway through where the truth might be or, you know, we're leaving it to the media to then perhaps, you know, use fear as a kind of a weapon a weapon of, of mass confusion that they are at the moment. So I think that would be one of the things that I think we're doing um We did some work at at GHD around sort of people's understanding of hydrogen. It's a new industry and, you know, where they might be and what are some of the problems we might need to solve because it's not particularly well understood. And one of the ones, so there were sort of four kind of key themes that came through that, but one of the ones that really resonated with me was A benefit scepticism, you know, we've got communities that are getting far more connected, they're getting far more engaged, they're getting far more deliberate about what they do and don't want. And they've been promised the world previously by other developers on other infrastructure projects or by governments on particular things. And those benefits haven't been realised. And now they're calling... They're calling that as rubbish and they want to actually start to understand in far more detail and be far more accountable for what actually might be returned by a project. So I think um, having clear, consistent messaging and operating from a you know, really basic principle but actually being truthful and authentic and trying to build trust with these communities because perhaps our predecessors in whatever industry that might be have maybe um, mistreated communities and they're not, they're not standing for it any longer. So start start from a place of being honest. Start from a place of being really um, empathetic. This is difficult. These are tough decisions. This is not an easy thing. This is going to disrupt our lives fundamentally. So we actually need to stop trying to put spin on it and actually start being really truthful about what we do know, what we don't know, how we're going to actually find out the things that we don't know, what are the things that are concerning them, what are the drivers that are driving developers and actually try and have tricky, difficult, uncomfortable but honest conversations so that we can actually find a pathway through. Because you know, being bombastic or bullying our way through might get us one project but it's certainly not going to get us to net zero and beyond.
0: I think that need to, to have clear, consistent, authentic messaging sounds to me like there's a there's a role in there for for multiple levels of government to be involved in that, right? And and I don't think we've quite cracked that nut across the globe,
2: even beyond government. That you know that consistent messaging needs to include developers. It needs to include industry association. It's we can't have this inconsistency because that's where we get fear and we get sort of confusion. So I
1: do think though that most people actually do believe in wind and solar and they have seen it lower their bills in a lot of places. And they've, they've seen the lowering costs that that's actually kind of helpful for us, you know, to make, to make hydrogen because it's easier to tell the story that this is what happened first. And now actually we're introducing something that will help when you need molecules. Um, that was great, great for electrons. And we are trying to electrify everything, but some things need molecules. And people understand like long distance truck driving, you know, they don't want to wait around for two hours or however long to, to load up. So, you know, hydrogen is a, is a good option for them. I mean, I think there's, there's a different narrative maybe for each sort of special interest or interest. Special interest sounds like they're lobbying, but that's not what I mean. Interest in general.
2: But, but within a, an umbrella of a consistent messaging. So hydrogen still, con, you know, contributing to decarbonisation, wind's contributing to decarbonisation for, you know, alternative fuels. All of that should sit under a kind of a drive towards net zero, a drive to a decarbonised kind of, yeah. And the messaging about a particular um, sector or technology or however we want to describe it is is unique in and of itself, but it still contributes to that sort of broader rhetoric.
0: So Alicia, I think we've talked a lot about innovative technologies. We've talked about hydrogen. I have a huge passion for hydrogen. I I really got into that game about four years ago, and I see the applicability, and I, I see how important it is. So innovative technologies, but also you know, there are innovative approaches in terms of how to best engage communities in energy transition projects. And I was just wondering if you could lead us through an example of what you've seen around an innovative approach for community engagement.
1: Sure. I think the, uh, the best one I've seen is in our portfolio, um, which you won't be too surprised by. But the Western Green Energy Hub, which is in Western Australia in the south, that is a, is a quite a big piece of land, about 30,000 square kilometers. Um, and it will be at least 50 gigawatts of upstream wind and solar. And we have partnered that project. In fact, we've given equity to the native title holders of that land. And, you know, at FID, they can sell out, they can stay in, they, you know, they, they, it's their choice. But they have a permanent seat on the board. And we signed a charter with them, which is also permanent, that we can't do anything to their land that they don't approve of. Now, that doesn't mean they're going to turn around and say, we don't want to make hydrogen anymore. But it's about not desecrating their sacred sites. It's about things that are very important to them and us having the respect for that. And, and I think that the West or the North, I mean, it keeps changing who's the worst here, but they tend to go into these communities or countries with their own viewpoint on what should happen and what is good for the people. And it's so condescending. It is so colonialist and it is so against anything that we're about. Um, and so we said, let's partner, let's get aligned. And let's make sure that you're getting what you want from this. And the beauty of hydrogen, obviously, is it's not extractive. And, you know, you can put the facilities up, but you're not going to ruin anything. There's five kilometers between turbines. You can do whatever you want in between. And, you know, it, it doesn't hurt. The Earth, you know, you you're you're not harming anything, so it's a really perfect fit in Australia for for the um, traditional owners and and native title holders, but also in Canada they're they're sort of copying this method as well. Also in Chile, it's happening. I mean, it's really funny that because we were so terrible to the the original owners of land, to the native title holders or First Nations. We kept pushing them into these like very desolate, flat, windy, sunny, you know, areas that don't really have arable land, and those turned out to be the absolute best places to make hydrogen. And so I feel like some kind of karma came out of that, uh, <laughs> and I'm really happy to see, you know, these communities not just having jobs, you know, and having income, but you know, they're we went on land for the first time with the the native title holders of of wgh of of that area and it's you know it's moving it's it's very important to them and it's really an honor to be able to help them maintain that land and and be stewards as they have been for the last forty thousand years, and also have them be comfortable, also have them be able to have jobs and and be able to um, you know uh, benefit from from the largesse of, of of what we're creating. I think it's really important, and I think that it is happening all over the world. I mean, even in the Middle East, we have these sort of nomadic and Bedouin communities that are similar in a way. You should partner, align and figure out the best way uh, to to solve your issues as opposed to basically trying to pay the least and treating the other party as as hostile. Because, you know, generally speaking, it's like the old business school case with the oranges. They want the orange peel. We want the orange inside. <laughs> you can fight forever, but you don't actually talk together. You'll never find that out. You might both think you want 12 oranges, you know, but actually... That's not the case. One entity wants 12 peels and the other entity wants orange juice. And and that's the kind of thing that uh, you know, you only find out if you talk to people and, and you you eat with them and you talk about what they think about and what it is that they're worried about, and then you get great ideas. And I, I think that's the best way to go about it. And and that's certainly how we got them running as partners, because my partner went out and told them what kind of opportunity this would be, and, and, and really befriended and became very close to them.
0: I've never heard that orange peel versus juice example before, but that's a wonderful analogy. That project example, that is powerful. I mean, I, that is an incredible, incredible engagement that you've done there. And I'm just, I'm just curious, Sarah, you, I and mean, you've been in, in the engagement side for so long. How do you respond to what Alicia just said about that project?
2: Oh, I, lo- I love it and it's interesting if you'd, um, you know, I think there's something, some special source in WA at the moment because um, one of the, the nicer innovations I've seen is is, is a similar, it's a, a developer in partnership with a with an Aboriginal corporation providing um, power to one of the big mining, you know, to decarbonise um, one of Rio Tinto's kind of operations and it really is that self-determination. If we think about sort of the foundations of kind of good community is it's to be humble and not to be sort of arrogant and assume that you know better but it's to actually ask the people people who know the area best around how might we, that sort of very open question about how might we do something together that is beneficial to you and beneficial to us and actually look to find... Common ground, rather than sort of be adversarial, and I think the the example Alicia gave around, you know, we need to get far better globally at finding common ground where these projects can actually be successful, because no one's going to win the net zero race if we don't all kind of find a way for this to work. So the principles that um that Alicia outlined, I love because they're exactly what we need to be doing far more of is to actually find willing partners to have very open conversations and look for situations that actually aggregate success rather than sort of divide communities.
0: You know, as a wrap on sort of, you know, what I've heard out of this conversation is, you know, the, the way we interact with communities, I mean, we're going through this energy transition, but I think we're also going through a transition in how we talk to people and how we communicate with our communities, going from the sense of they're an obstacle, something we need to deal with, it's a check mark process, let's do the minimum we can do and see if we can get that check mark so we can move on to sort of treating it as, a, as an opportunity for the communities. But even further than that, going to that partnering mentality, these are partners that we're going to be living with and working with for many, many years. And to me, that sounds like the optimal model to get to if we're really going to build all this infrastructure that we know we need on a pathway to decarbonization. So fantastic discussion. I I, I really, really enjoyed this. I know we've gone uh, over time a little bit, but I do want to throw one final question at you both, if you you don't mind, to to get your opinions. So So the energy transition is what we're really talking about. And and how can the energy transition, in your opinions, be made more inclusive and equitable, ensuring that no one is left behind in terms of access to energy um, that is affordable and is high quality? How do we ensure no one is left behind?
1: I can give you an example in, in one silo or one sort of industry, and then I think it's a good way to look at other industries. So if you look at shipping, shipping is, is, an, is an odd industry <laughs> um, because they have uh, one regulator for the whole world, the IMO. And that regulator is able to not only introduce taxation or, or different laws, but they, they also um, enforce. They are made of a collection of 160 or so member states, and most of the member states are Global South. So if you want to get any kind of support for, you know, subsidizing green fuels or for switching to green fuels, um, and you obviously don't want to hurt these Global South countries that did nothing to contribute to the pollution that is causing our problem. One of the things that you can do is, is really just look at every single country And find out how it is that they can actually gain from this transition. And in some cases, you know, these global south countries have fantastic renewables. So that's kind of a no-brainer. They should be making green fuels. And this is something that, you know, will be a positive for them. And it's also a great infrastructure sort of backbone so that they can start building other things. Because they will attract, if they build a large enough energy, green energy magnet, it will bring all of these industries like aluminum and steel and whatnot there, the same way that dirty energy brought them to the places that had inexpensive energy. So for IMO to be able to levy a tax on on ships that are using dirty fuels, they have to get a certain amount of agreement from all of these global South countries. And those countries are represented to the IMO by typically the head of uh, the Navy, That person, as brilliant as they may be in naval capacity, is likely not an economist, is likely not focused on everything that that country is focused on. And so I think it's really important that we interact with these individual countries. And when I say we, you know, I'm personally working with IFC and World Bank and UNIDO and all these entities, not for our projects necessarily, but because there's value there, and even if they don't have the, you know, the resources at such a high quality, if they're island states, they're they're bringing in diesel generators. It's very expensive. They could have enough of their own renewables uh, and be able to be self uh, sufficient and not be paying such high prices and the pollution. And then Southeast Asia, it's squally skies, not a lot of wind. It's probably not perfect to to make your hydrogen either. But they're going to be really good at making supply chain elements, uh, electrolyzers like for Thailand, Vietnam, uh, Malaysia. They're going to be able to make electrolyzers. They're going to be able to make PV. And that, again, is really helpful because we're diversifying it. We're providing optionality for us as as a developer and an investor and a long-term holder, but also for the world because we're not dependent on one entity for a specific mineral or metal I think that really what really needs to be done is to just sit down with each country and walk through what do you have and what could you do with it? Um, and, and find a way for them to be a part of this hydrogen economy. And as, as Sarah said before, um, I think there's tons of opportunities for leapfrogging to look at that obstacle, not as a block of wood, but as a springboard that you actually can can work with them to go better and higher and have none of this legacy issue. There, there's a lot of places like that. And and so I am very optimistic that we will be able to crack this nut. Um, <laughs> and a, a lot of the multilaterals that I work with that used to be a bit more bureaucratic really are very motivated and, and are really passionate about this. And so I, I think right now is a really... Kind of lucky time to get in there and start speaking and and brainstorming and finding ways uh, to make this a really happy ending for every country.
0: I love that you say that you're optimistic. Um, I am too. And I think we need more people to be optimistic because, um, first of all, we have to be. I, I really believe we have to be if we're going to get this done. Sarah, how about you? The, the just transition is something we talk about. How, how do you see that?
2: I think we need to look at sort of that whole issue both between countries and within countries so I think Alicia made the point earlier around you know if you can afford to have solar panels on your roof you're reaping some of the benefits but if you're perhaps not in a position to be able to afford that then you're also you're you know the burden there's an extra burden on you in terms of energy pricing in terms of you know decarbonisation and a range of things but I think where I come back to in all of this is we actually need to flip our mindset completely when we talk about the energy transition most people think about infrastructure and things that need to change and we need to put people at the heart of our thinking on the energy transition. The reason we're doing it is because we want to continue as a race, we want to prosper as a as um you know a global community. And at the moment the people are not being thought of in this whole whole process. We think about stuff and things, not about sort of people. And we really need to, in my mind, really need to switch our thinking to to actually put people and communities at the heart of our thinking and our decision making. So that sort of would be one Um, from me and I also think we need to sort of stop and this is a very again a kind of a very um, you know sort of uh, from a place of privilege but the We need to view the energy transition as progress, not perfection. If we're only going to wait for the perfect solution, then we're going to perhaps miss the boat and we're not going to be making those stepping stones. This is not going to be a linear path to get from where we are to where we need to be. And it will have, you know, it'll have some trade-offs, some which will be, you know, maybe imperfect, but maybe that's better than making no progress. So things, you know, if people are very polarised on the role of gas as a transition fuel, need to perhaps flip our thinking around progress. We need progress towards net zero, not perfection. So that would probably be my um, my second point. And my third point is we need to probably think about this whole, the sort of energy transition as it's a game across the globe. We all need for this to win. So we can't, you know, there's no point in, in Fiji winning the race to net zero and everyone else surrounding that country not being, not being there. So we all need to win. And that will mean that some countries need to have more investment in it. We've reaped the rewards of some of the sort of decisions that have been made in the past and therefore we need to perhaps have a a greater contribution towards ensuring our global success. So I think there's a lot in the mindset, Tej, around how we think about some of these things that we need to sort of really check ourselves on and maybe flip our kind of thinking process.
0: Yeah, that's to be a win-win 190 times or however many countries there are, right? Yeah, Different stops along the journey, isn't it, for, for a lot of people. Um, I just put a heat pump in as well a couple of months ago. I, I will second you on that Alicia. It was super easy. They, they came along. They installed it in a few hours. They left, and everything worked. It was fantastic, actually.
1: And it has air conditioning, too.
0: It's a one-stop shop.
1: And you only need it three days. You only need it for, like, three days of summer, so it's, you
0: know. <laughs> yeah, up in Canada. That's true. That is yeah. true. Yeah, but I, I, I needed a lot in winter <laughs> up here, I must say. I do like the race is on and that the race is not uh, you know, between each other or against each other. It's against time and we and we need all our communities along that pathway as, as a partner as well. I think that's a beautiful way to wrap up. Really wanna thank you both for for a, a deep discussion. This has been absolutely a wonderful uh, time spent with you. Thank you so much.
2: Thanks, Tasha. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of A Clarion Call. Listen to more episodes in the series on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. To read our research report, Shocked, which unpacks opportunities to de-risk the energy transition in an era of profound uncertainty, visit shocked.ghd.com. I'm Dr. Tej Gita, thanks for joining us.